This week on the show, we have a geeky weather check for you. And uh, that's not all. It's also the controversial licensing model and potential solutions that uh, another Florida articles tells us about. The geeky way of checking what the weather outside is like and that BSD blog article. The Alpine Linux on a FreeBSD jail is kind of a how-to we have for you. Dragonfly BSD on a ThinkPad T480 S and how well that works. Dealing with USB storage devices on OmniOS. Creating a time capsule instance using Samba, FreeBSD and ZFS is what Dan Langell has for us in the tutorial section. And a whole bunch of BSD conferences, announcements and dates and happenings in a separate section exactly for that. ESD Now, episode 544, Geeky Weather Check. Recorded on the 24th of January 2024. A lot of 24s here. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. We are now also with Jason in the new year. Well, he has joined the, the new year earlier than probably most of us, right? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I joined it 11 hours before you guys did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we uh, are on a new platform, and I kind of made it a bit exciting last time, so that went into the recording, uh, but our producer, JT, mentioned that uh, with the video that we now have, it's kind of taking approximately three times the processing time to make it a real video, so we're not uh, prepared to do that yet. Um, and we are looking for you know, Patreons or sponsors who, who would make that worthwhile for him. And uh, the platform is nice. We had good test last time with Tom, and now we're doing the same with Jason. And if that works fine, then uh, it's probably a bit easier for us to record and also for interviewees, which we hope to have in this year, because they just have to go to a website and don't have to do some extra uh, things on their side. So that's most of the things we are looking forward to. And there's a lot of interviewees out there. There's a lot of stuff that's happening. So, um, you know, if you're doing something in the BSDs, uh, fire away an email feedback at bsdnow.tv and uh, we'll get you on for an interview. Um, exactly. Which, yeah, there's like, some exciting stuff that's happening out there yeah, behind the plans, scenes. So, yeah. Everything you've been working on over the holidays and what better way to tell the world at the beginning of the year. Okay, uh, we do that just now because we have uh, collected, as always, the BSD news of the week. And the first one is the headlines, the GPL3, the controversial licensing model and potential solutions from Clara Systems, another article. Yeah, so this is an article over on the Clara Systems website. Uh, in, as part of their blog process, they're quite busy blogging, which is good because there's always fresh content coming out from Clara. So this uh, covers the GPL3, the controversial licensing model and potential solutions for it. So the GNU or the general public license GPL uh, has been a cornerstone in the open source community uh, dictating, and we use that word intentionally, how software can be freely used, modified and distributed. GPL version 3 released in 2007 introduced significant changes from its predecessor, GPL2, and sparked considerable debate among developers and corporations. The article delves into the controversial surrounding GPL3 and its differences from GPL2 and compares it with other popular licenses like BSD and MIT to understand how they coexist in the open source ecosystem. So let's start with some interesting numbers. Permissive licenses stand out as the most popular choice in the open source community. The MIT license leads the pack, being the choice for over 812,000 projects. Following closely is the Apache 2.0 license, used in around 465,000 projects. The BSD3 three-cores license, another permissive option, is applied to approximately 71,000 projects. Together, these three licenses, MIT, Apache 2.0, and BSD3, account for roughly 70% of 
projects in the libraries.io dataset. Why does it matter now? One might argue with the changes being introduced in 2007, 2024 is hardly the year to get annoyed at changes. However, the relevance of GPL3 implications is accentuated by the increasing integration of open source software in enterprise environments and advancements in technology sectors like IoT and cloud computing. These developments bring GPL3's provisions on users' rights and software distribution to the forefront. Additionally, growing concerns about user privacy, digital rights, and the rise in software patent litigation makes understanding GPL3's approach vital for legal compliance and strategic business planning. In, ev in the evolving landscape, comprehending GPL3 and other licenses is crucial for leveraging the benefits of open source while addressing its challenges. So what's controversial about GPL3? GPL3 has been contentious for various reasons. One primary concern is its approach to TVOization. TVOization refers to the practice of using GPL licensed software on hardware that restricts modification of that software. GPL3 prohibits this practice, ensuring that users have the freedom to modify GPL licensed software running on their devices, a stance that some manufacturers and developers have opposed. Other controversial aspects is the license's stance on patent litigation. GPL3 attempts to protect users against patent litigation arising from the use of GPL licensed software, which has been met with a resistance from companies heavily invested in software patents. Additionally, GPL3 addresses the issues of digital rights management, DRM. It explicitly forbids the use of GPL licensed software in systems designed to enforce DRM restrictions, which has caused concern among content providers and software developers who implement DRM. The differences from GPL2. GPL3 differs from GPL2 in several key areas. Firstly, it includes specific provisions against TVization, which were absent in GPL2. This change aims to ensure that end users retain the ability to modify GPL licensed software, even when it's used in conjunction with the hardware that might otherwise restrict such modifications. Secondly, GPL3 offers better compatibility with other licenses and addresses international copyright laws more effectively. It has specific provisions for dealing with copyright laws in various jurisdictions, making it more globally acceptable than GPL2. And thirdly, GPL3 strengthens the license's stance on patents. It includes a provision that prevents distributors of GPL license software from suing users for patent infringement, which was less explicit aspects of GPL2. In-depth description of BSD and MIT licensing. The BSD, or Berkeley Software Distribution, and MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology Licenses, are two of the most permissive open source licenses. They allow users to use, modify, and redistribute licensed software with minimal restrictions. The BSD license, originating from the University of California, Berkeley, comes in several variants, but they all share the commonality of minimal restrictions. The most notable requirement is the necessity to include the original copyright notice and the disclaimer in any redistribution, whether in binary or source code form. The MIT license is similar in its permissiveness, it is conscious and straightforward, permitting almost unrestricted use, modification, and distribution of licensed software, provided that the original copyright notice and permission notice are included in all copies of substantial proportions of the software. Corporate response to GPL3. The release of GPL3 has significantly impacted the corporate world, particularly those companies that integrate open source software into their commercial products. Many corporations have been taken aback by the stringent conditions imposed by GPL3, especially regarding TVization, DRM restrictions and patent litigation clauses. These provisions have raised concerns about the potential legal risks and limitations on how they can be used and distribute the software. As a result, several companies have no GPL3 v at all policies have started exploring alternatives to GPL3 licensed software. These clauses have concerned in many corporations who see them as potential legal risks 
that conflict with their strategies relying on proprietary technology. Consequently, companies are increasingly exploring GPL3 alternatives favoring permissive licenses like MIT, BSD, or Apache, which offer flexibility and control over proprietary components. This shift reflects balance between open source ideals and corporate practicalities, marking a significant trend in software development and distribution. How it all works together in the open source world. The coexistence of GPL3 with other open source licenses like BSD and MIT reflect the diverse philosophies within the open source community. While GPL3 emphasizes freedom and users' rights, BSD and MIT licenses focus on minimal restrictions on software use and distribution. In practice, these differing philosophies can lead to compatibility issues. For instance, software under GPL3 can be combined with software under the BSD license, but once combined, the result is effectively entirely GPL3 as the more stringent terms apply to the result. However, the open source community often navigates these challenges through careful license selection and compliance. The variety of licenses allows developers and organizations to choose the model that best aligns with their goals and values. Some prefer the strong copy left of GPL3 to ensure freedom for end users, while others opt for permissive nature of BSD or MIT licenses to encourage broader use and navigate and contribute to the software. Conclusion GPL3 remains the subject of debate in the open source community due to its stringent stance on issues like TVOization, DRM, and patent litigation. Its differences from GPL2 reflect a shift towards greater user freedom and global ap- applicability. Meanwhile, the BSD and MIT licenses offer a more permissive alternative, highlighting the diversity of thought within the open source world. Understanding these different licensing models is crucial for anyone involved in open source software as they shape the way software is shared, modified, and utilized across the globe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, uh, you know, overview and some decision points if you're in the uh, in the area of making a decision whether or not to use GPL, whether for your own source or the thing that you want to publish or that you have uh, you know, something that you want to use and not sure about the licensing, what kind of impact this will have. Yeah, I've never really sort of taken a stance too much on licensing. However, I do prefer the BSD licensing because it's one of those ones that's quite flexible. You don't have to think too much. Yeah. Um, you know, it's open source. It's like anything that I do. It's like, it is what it is. You know, if anybody wants to take it and do what they want to do with it, that's fine. You know, if a business wants to make money out of it, like, I don't know what they'd make out of it. They can, and, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I can understand, um, you know, some people reasoning for going down the GPL3 path. At the end of the day, you know, you look at the BSDs, you know, we all, the software is all used, and a lot of organizations, you know, port the stuff back up tree that they're working on because it's easier for it to be maintained in the central repository than under their own stuff and then trying to retrofit that later on. So, um, yeah, you know. The BSDs sort of, you know, have worked, and, they, and I have no problems with the Apache or MIT licenses. They work uh, quite uh, well with the stuff that I work with as well. Yeah, and I know for people who are really, you know, I we can't use this in our company, or even if you're uh, using that at home and have some philosophical issues with this in the package managers, for example, at least on FreeBSD, and I'm fairly sure that. Um, the other ones also have that where you can say allowed licenses or accepted licenses and you can kind of list which ones you want or also say licenses I don't want and then packages that have that license you don't want will not be installed or will at least give you a warning so that you are kind of compliant with your own internal legal or philosophical uh, guidelines. Yeah, I know are. with the OpenBSD project, uh, there is a couple of packages that um, are in the ports tree, but they aren't compiled and released as part of the standard release process because they don't either. They're not either covered by um, a permissive or a GPL license. So if they've uh, got a more restrictive license than either of those, they actually aren't compiled. So you actually have to go in the ports tree and build it yourself if you do want it. Yeah. 
I think package storage should also have something like that, given their wide distribution, not just uh, on a NetBSD, which turns ha nice bridge into the next article, NetBSD. <laughs> that was totally unintentional, but okay. Um, the next article we have is the geek's way of checking what the outside weather is like, right? Like you don't look outside windows because, well, most people don't live in a in the, in the cellar that have windows. Well, uh, whatever happens, uh, this is a way how to do it in the technological kind of way. So this is on the NetBSD project blog and written by Martin Husemann. And the product goes, when I bought my house in 2004, I went shopping for an outside thermometer and ended up with a full weather station instead, a WS2300. When I unpacked it, I found a serial cable inside. Long story short, I was still in the process of recabling the house, running Ethernet to every room, and added a serial cable from the machine room to the WS2300, and then did some package source work and got MISC slash open, uh, open 2300 and MISC open 2300 slash MySQL. I used those to log the data from the weather station to a MySQL database and later moved that via MISC open 2300 PGSQL to a Postgres database. Huh. Now, sometime this year, this machine running the database had to be replaced. Should have done that earlier. It was power-hungry and wasteful. Uh, okay. The replacement was an ARCH64 SOC, a Pine64 Quart64 Model A. And it had no real COM ports, of course, anymore. I had experimented with USB serial adapters in the WS2300 before, but for unclear reasons this time, uh, he, Martin had no luck and couldn't get it to work. So since some of the outdoor sensors of the old weather station had started failing, he decided to replace it. And here goes, the new weather station, new sensors. He picked up a WS3500 because it comes with a nice remote sensor arrangement. So there's a couple of pictures in this blog post, but um, we uh, let you go to the website yourself and uh, see them if you're interested in details. So he attached it to the satellite dish mount uh, about 1.2 meters above his garage and ran two wire cables through the mount to supply it with three volts and get rid of any batteries. It does not have a connector for that, but the battery compartment had enough space for a 330 micro uh, alcohol and soldering that and the cable directly to the battery contacts was easy. Okay, a little bit of electronics knowledge. The sensors report to the weather station via proprietary protocol in the 868 MHz band. All right, new weather station, new reporting. The weather station can connect to a Wi-Fi network, but does not offer any services itself. The app used to configure the station offers several predefined weather collection services. And he found the idea a bit strange to have his local weather data locked to some server somewhere else in the cloud. Haha, <laughs> weather and cloud, haha. <laughs> and then <clears throat> get it back via his browser. But for others, this is a good thing. He found another article that describes exactly the remote only, no machines required on-site setup. He used that article as inspiration for the data collection, but that part turned out to be quite trivial. See uh, below and uh, copied a lot of the representation side from it. Also, more details below. So in his setup, he created web servers on two dedicated ports of his tiny machine running the Postgres server. Uh, one is used by the weather station for reporting the data, and the other is used to query the database. Ah, okay. The configuration of the weather station for a custom weather was easy. So he provides a couple of screenshots, and of course, with a couple of things bl blurred out so that you don't know uh, actually where that is or what his credentials are. Uh, but he tested the EcoWIT protocol first. It uses a post of a fixed URL and the form data has nearly identical data that we get with the solution he ended up with. Only a few names or form fields are slightly different. The blackened item station ID and station key appear verbatim in the reported data so you can set them to whatever you want. The scripts below do not check them. The weather on the ground uh, protocol does a simple HTTP GET and provides all data as query parameters. You had to add the trailing question mark in the configuration, and this makes it very easy to extract the data in a script on the server side. But let's get here step by step. NetBSD comes with an HTTP HTTPS server in base, originally called Bozo HTTPD. It is very lightweight, but it can run various types of scripts. He picked up the plain old simple CGI and BinSH as language using a bit of awk to convert the units. And he showed uh, what kind of uh, entries he has in his access file, like in 
VIPW. So one is for the weather update service and for the other is the weather query service. So he has two users. Of course, they can't log in. They're just daemons doing their work. And two HTTPD instances for them in etc inetd entry to collect the incoming data. And they just run um, a script. One is a JavaScript and the other is... Um, well, both are the CGI scripts, but they process a couple of things uh, extra. One of them is the JavaScript part. Okay. The document root uh, slash weather slash files would not be used for the instance on port 80, but HTTPD needs one. Note that these lines use the quiet flag, which is only available in NetBSD current. You can replace it with uh, dash lowercase s for older versions. Uh, home directories for both users are mostly empty besides the a.pg pass file that contains the password for this user connection to the Postgres server. And he has uh, all uh, illustrated so you can follow along if you like. And at the Postgres level, the user weather query needs to have select privileges on a table weather and open 2300 needs to have insert privileges. Yeah, this only adds data and never, uh, you know, deletes or updates them. The table schema uh, he provides as well. It's a big create table statement. And then there's a couple of uh, also table statements for, uh, you know, adding the user to the table, allowing the objects to read and uh, manipulate, in this case, just inserts. And the select is given to the weather query only. So nicely separation of concerns. And uh, if something happens, then a, a weather uh insert uh, is only possible with the insert user whether the and the weather query can only read as noted above he carried the, this database over with minor modifications from previous instances of the whole setup so it may not be optimal or elegant one thing that needs special attention is the timestamp column it carries date and time in utc and has no time zone associated this looks like a natural choice but has some unexpected consequences when querying data in json format timestamp will not get the javascript marker for utc but a Z suffix, so for Zulu, I'm presuming. So in the JavaScript code, in the web pages, you will find quite a few places that cover up for this. Okay, now when the weather station sends data to the configured web server, INAT runs HTTPD, and that involves a shell script, weather CGI slash update.cgi as the weather update user. The script uses awk to do a few unit conversions and output a SQL command to insert the data into the weather table. This SQL command is then piped to PSQL with the connection string passed on the command line and the corresponding password is found in the .pg pass in the weather update user's home directory. Uh, and he provides the full script if anyone wants to adapt this. And so uh, there's a little bit more about that, but let's move on to the presenting the data section. So he needed an internal web site to show actually what kind of weather it is outside, which needs access to the data. The above setup already paved the way for that. Via the second port he set up, he wanted to show all the current data in one page and variable history data on another, which meant two CGI scripts to query the data. And uh, these scripts just fetch the last record locked and creates a JSON form from it or JSON from it and also uses the POM and the SunWait program from package storage to supply some site and date specific data. Ah, okay. The whole script is provided so you can modify it, copy and paste. I'm fairly sure you won't mind. As you can see, if you would restrict output to plain data from the database, the script would be only four or five lines long, but like the additional spicing. <laughs> okay. And there's a bit more to fetch the data. That's now easy in uh, JavaScript because he did some conversions there. And yeah, all looking good. Like the results are shown with like, you know, how what's the humidity, what the uh, relative pressure is on that day. And, you know, when the dawn happens and when sunrise is and all these things. Everyone wants to know. Uh, then he provides a couple of graphs for us to uh, look at. And the question remains, what about other weather stations, right? There are quite a few similar weather stations out there. Now that seems to run related firmware and have similar capabilities. Most likely the update script and details in the presentation pages will need adjustments for other types. If you start with a different device, just lock all the data it sends and adjust the CGI scripts accordingly. For protocol analyzing, there are several easy means. Uh, so he provides a couple of uh, things. Remove the dash Q flag in the HTTPD command and the check the var log slash x for log for the query parameters sent by the weather station. 
uh, make the station log to debug that CGI to first capture everything. This works for the EcoWid protocol and all the stations seem to use HTTP only, not HTTPS, so we can sniff the traffic. Use TCP dump-w on the uh, server to capture all the data and then analyze it with NetWire Shark from package source. Okay, nice. This is useful for starters who want to really know what time was it at 2300 hours uh, on March 15, 20, I don't know which one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting um, you know, way of doing it. Uh, I, I look back at one I did back in, I think it was 2008, uh, but I used, uh, I think it was a Windows XP. Yeah, I think it was Windows XP and um, and uh, Cumulus or something like that, but it was more of a, you know, just a set up on a laptop and run sort of thing and then just pumped it up to the internet so you could actually see it online. This goes into uh, a bit more detail and actually captures it so you can use the data. Uh, and it's not just stored away in some binary hidden away from you being up, not being able to access it and do what you like with it. The graphs look actually really, really nice. So, um, yeah, I highly recommend people going to the uh, blog part article over on NetBSD to have a look at um, the, the different graphs that it does produce. Okay, on the news roundup. We have an article, uh, Installing Alpine Linux on a FreeBSD Jail. Uh, this is by Stefano Marinelli um, over on his blog, Installing Alpine Linux on a FreeBSD Jail. Alpine Linux is one of those, one of my favorite Linux distributions, particularly for specialized purposes. I recently faced the task of moving an Alpine Linux-based VPS onto a FreeBSD host and considered two approaches. Approach one, moving the VPS to Beehive on FreeBSD. The simplest and most conventional method involves transferring the VPS to the FreeBSD host and running it on Beehive. This solution is proven and stable. However, Beehive doesn't support memory ballooning. The assigned and unused memory used by the Alpine VPS for caching but rendered unnecessary since FreeBSD performs its own caching led to me to explore other methods. Item two, uh, using a Linux emulator. With the Linux emulator, uh, I thought it was about creating a jail and copying Alpine Linux into it, attempting to run all necessary services, not many, but complex enough to initially discourage a direct migration to FreeBSD. This approach wasn't pioneering as it's been used by others and myself in other situations, but I had never applied it to Alpine Linux before. The implementation. I won't describe the entire process of what I did. It turned out to be straightforward. I prepared a Linux jail, configured it, performed an unsync of the entire file system of the original VPS, fixed a few things, and started it up. However, I will explain how I created and used Alpine Linux jails on FreeBSD hosts without any jail management software like Bastille BSD, IOCage, EasyJail, etc. Many aren't aware that managing the entire jail lifecycle is already integrated into FreeBSD and these tools are helpful but not strictly necessary. Enabling the Linux emulator. First, enable and start the Linux emulator on FreeBSD server. So uh, do that with service Linux enable and service Linux start. This loads all necessary modules for executing Linux compiled executables. Setting up the jail. Choose the path for installing the jail. There is no need to use ZFS for this type of setup. UFS is sufficient. So create the path, for example, slash var slash jails, and the path for the individual jails, such as slash var slash jails slash alpine01. Then make the dash p slash var slash jails slash alpine1. Download the Alpine Linux base file system directly to from the Alpine Linux website and decompress it in the newly created directory. And he's got the code there where he creates the creates the directory, fetches the mini root fs from Alpine, uh, extracts it with tar, and then removes the downloaded file. You probably could throw that through one single command, but um, it's just there for simplicity. In theory, the base system is already functional, but some services might complain about missing configurations. 
it's advisable to create the file slash etz slash network slash interfaces. So he's got um, an echo command that pipes that uh, auto lo into that to create the loopback interface. And if you want to use OpenRC, uh, he has an example there for uh, OpenRC. Starting the jail. The jail is now ready to be launched. There are two approaches. Include its configuration in slash etc slash jail.com of the FreeBSD server or create a separate file and launch it manually. The latter allows for an interesting possibilities. Everything related to the jail lives in the slash bar slash jails directory, which could be on a different device, even NFS or external. This approach is also applicable for FreeBSD jails and is convenient for portable jails or those used from encrypted slash separated devices. Following this second approach, he created a file name slash var slash jail slash alpine01.com containing the jail configuration. Uh, he intentionally left the console log lines and started of OpenRC commented out. Not everybody wants them. And OpenRC is currently not present present in the jail. Adjust the assigned IPs and interface based on your configuration. So he creates the jails FS tab and uh, it's listed there in the blog post. Launching and testing the jail. To launch the jail, it's simply jail-crm-f and alpine01.com. For testing, uh, he executes a jexec alpine01 login-f root. And that's it. Welcome to your new Alpine Linux jail. Once in the jail, don't forget to add the name server in slash etc slash resolve.conf or the jail won't be able to perform DNS resolutions. To simulate a real Alpine Linux boot as closely as possible, I suggest installing OpenRC. So APK add OpenRC. Then you can modify the Alpine01.conf file, exit the jail and adjust as follows. Now you can restart the jail and see OpenRC start services, currently none, inside the jail. The jail is now ready. The Linux emulator can't emulate all Linux syscalls, so some things might not work or only work partially. However, it's more than adequate for many users. The same approach can also be used for other distributions. A convenient method to download the root root file system of various distributions is to look for those already created for LXC, freely downloadable as regular files. And just on a subtext box here, he's got uh, FreeBSD Jails, Embrace, Alpines, Freedom Finds Its Place, Unix Worlds in Grace. Huh, that's a nice haiku. All right, yeah. So now we have a couple more Linux distributions available as Jails. Uh, Ubuntu is pretty popular. I'm fairly sure that most people have that. But hey, there's now Alpine as well. Okay, then next up, we have Dragonfly BSD on a ThinkPad T480S. And that is over uh, at uh, git.sr.ht. And it's written by Tom Harnd, apparently. So that goes. Uh, I took some time off at work uh, at the end of December and decided to play around with Dragonfly BSD, a really interesting OS. I really liked the simplicity of the family of BSD operating systems. For a while, I ran OpenBSD as a daily driver on a number of different laptops. OpenBSD is great OS, but it's not very performant, nor is performance something the OpenBSD team prioritizes, which led me to Dragonfly BSD, the snappiest, most performant BSD on the uh, of the bunch. Initial installation. Download the USB image from the Dragonfly BSD website. I was able to use UEFI and follow the defaults on the install process. One thing I did do was add my user to the wheel in video groups, which would uh, give you uh, access uh, to sudo and x, respectively. Of course, you can always do that later. Dragonfly BSD does not come with xorg installed, so your initial boot, you'll get a bash shell prompt with good old VI as your editor. Okay, install packages. Like most of the BSDs, Dragonfly BSD comes with a minimal but thoughtful set of initial programs, so you want to start by copying the sample repository config to start installing basic packages, and he provides the line to do exactly that. 
then he installs a couple of useful programs and to make setup easier using package upgrade, package update. That's an interesting order. Don't you do update first, then upgrade? Oh, okay. Uh, then he does uh, package install of bash, vim, sudo, curl, hex, chat, Firefox, and keypass XC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to remove user local bin OpenSSL at this step due to conflicts with LibreSSL. Ah, yes. Then there's the Wi-Fi section. My router is in a cold, unfinished basement, so one of the first things I did was set up Wi-Fi, which was a breeze. Most of the section below is shamelessly lifted from the Dragonfly BSD website. I guess that's what the website is for. The wireless device on the T480S is identified with IWM0 and at the IWM drivers to bootloader conf. He provides the lines to do that, so you can just go to the uh, show notes and directly from there into this blog post and just copy-paste and save you some typing. The version of WPA Supplicant that comes with Dragonfly BSD is old, so it's quite a good idea to install the newer version from packages. You do that by package installing WPA Supplicant. Next, set up WAPA supplicant by providing it in etcrc.conf. And he shows to how to do that. And he opens etcwpa, the supplicant conf, and replaces the my SSID and my PSK with your own SSID and PSK, of course. And then uh, the last steps are adding two more lines to rcconf. WLANs underscore RAL0. Uh, to WLAN 0 and if config underscore WLAN 0 equals WPA DHCP. Reboot to get the Wi-Fi drivers and test your connection. Okay. Then he enables sudo. I guess that's fairly uh, universal whatever Unix you run. Uh, he just enables the wheel group and then those people in that group can make uh, use of sudo. Install X. I run into a number of issues here. First getting a sec fault when I try to start X and then X loading, but with no keyboard support. Hmm. Big thanks to at ALI and at data UPE in the Dragonfly BSD uh, IRC who gave him some crucial pointers to push through. Install XORG, a desktop environment and a display manager. So he provides the steps to do that. And to fix the keyboard issue, he needed to install package install xf86-input-evdev and echoed current.evdev.rcp underscore mask equals 3 to sysctrconf. And after uh, enabling xdm in rcconf, shouldn't that be echo xdm underscore enable equals yes? Okay, I might be wrong. Update. XDM crashes on logout, requiring a hard reset, he writes. I've found that the Slim Display Manager works better to install and enable Slim package install Slim. Uh, add the following to rcconf, dbus enable and hldenable enable, both set to yes. Finally, configure home slash dot x session and set, uh, he sets x set b off to disable the system beep. Yeah, that can be annoying. And xmodmap home slash dot xmodmap to link to that file and execute start xfce, his uh, desktop environment of choice. Then he changes the default shell to bash. That's also fairly unique, uh, fairly easy. And then he sets up the actual window manager. That's uh, uh, the default font is in TWM and CWM is very small, he writes. So let's make things bigger by adding the following lines to home slash x dot uh, dot capital X defaults. So he provides his favorite, uh, you know, typeface and the size is 13. So that's a bit bigger. And if you're a Vim user, this has always a critical tweak. Ah, look at that. Swap caps lock with escape. Yes, to have that a bit more easier to type. And uh, a couple of other things. Just look at the blog post for details. Okay, get sound working. So he has a link to another article, I guess, uh, where that is described more. And that makes SDN, SND HDA load equals yes, and U audio load equals yes, and that apparently makes sound work. Tuning for energy use. Uh, he added uh, the CPU CX lowest C3 and ACPI CPU CX lowest C2 to, uh, depending on whether you're on the cable or on battery life. Okay, the next thing are the section about outstanding issues. So touchpad, the biggest headache by far for me, which I have not been able to resolve yet, is getting a touchpad working on my to my liking. I use the Acme editor, so the touchpad needs to either work very well or I'm turning it off. 
the touchpad on the ThinkPad T480s is an Elan Tech. I was able to enable uh, Elan Tech support, but it turned into a game of device driver whack-a-mole. Every time I got one feature working, something else stopped working. Uh, I eventually gave up and plugged in an Evoluant three-button mouse, okay, which works quite nicely in the XFCE desktop environment. I'm going to take another shot at getting the trackpad working, focusing on the following. Decrease sensitivity, disable touchpad while typing, enable two-finger scrolling, and recognize all three physical buttons. Then he provides the mouse good enough solution, quote-unquote, and uh, saying in rcconf to add the lines, mouse de-enable equals yes, mouse de-type auto, mouse de-port def psm0, and mouse de-flags equals capital V. Other issues he lists are that the buttons on top don't work except the mute-unmute button. The laptop is a little slow after battery-saving tweaks. I'm going to play with this more. And suspender resume doesn't work, but that's an issue even a lot of Linux distros have other to-dos get volume buttons working and adjust the backlight okay maybe that will be a follow-up blog post which we'll be happy to uh, add here as well in a future episode a good uh, write-up for how to get dragonfly working on on basically you know a workstation as well that can be adapted to using a, a desktop as well and uh good to see uh, another vsd being used um as a everyday machine so well done over on the tool fatigue blog dealing with the usb storage devices on on the os and they go i want to deal with flash ssd and sata drives connected to a thinkpad a485 using its usb ports this is my cheat sheet based on managing usb storage devices on oracle solaris 11.2 and it uh, it's got a link there over to oracle's docs website uh, for further information on how to do that. Identifying USB mass storage devices. Logs. The logs indicate when a new USB hardware is connected or removed from the computer. This is a Corsair Voyager GT 16 gigabyte connect to, to a USB 3 port. And he's got the messages file there that um, shows when the devices have been plugged in. Uh, and then another message is around when a U, uh, one terabyte Sabrent NVMe M2 SSD is connected to its USB-C port. And then on this particular machine, the following warning pops up regularly. So he's got a warning there um, of uh, no SOF uh, interrupts have been received. This USB ECHI host controller is unusable. According to Illumos Gate, this is not really harmful. I couldn't have it go while changing parameters on the BIOS. System configuration. USB devices are displayed in the system configuration tool. And it's got a PRT comp minus P minus D capital D. And it's got the system configuration of the Lenovo and um, the uh, PCI bus there is displayed. Removable rewritable media format utility. On OmniOS, the RM format does not seem to be installed by default. So they execute a package install um, from the media and volume manager and then display the USB device information. So then RM format is installed and then it does a list of uh, looking for devices. So it does a walk through the devices there. USB flash drive. Format the flash drive using FAT. So format minus E, and then that's uh, interactive. So uh, it basically goes through the available disk that you can select. They select the disk. Um, they uh, do the current that shows the display of the PCI bus, and then they do an inquiry on the disk to get the vendor details. Um, and then uh, at the format prompt, issue the fdisk uh, obviously there's no fdisk table existing on this device um, so the default petition for the disk is 100 percent solaris system petition and then if you wish to accept it you press the y key um, otherwise no uh, in this instant they press no and um, they continue through with the manual petitioning at the end of that, uh, an MKFS is executed um, with a format of PCFS uh, with FAT32 um, set up on that onto the disk itself. 
and then mount and copy data and unmount the drive. So they mount the drive there explicitly saying PCFS to the slash MNT directory. Um, then they just execute a D message over to it and to simulate writing something to the disk. You can see that uh, there's uh, 32K used then on the disk and then they unmount it. Uh, USB NVMe SATA drive using FAT32. So they go through that whole process again, um, creating a FAT file system on that uh, NVMe drive um, and basically simulate the whole process again. Then they have a go at using NTFS. So installing the NTFS tools, uh, which is the NTFS uh, 3G tools that we're all familiar with. Um, basically create the, the petition again as there was before uh, and then create the NTF file system, which is slightly different using the MKNTFS uh, command that came in with NTFS 3G and then interact with the file system. So they mount uh, with the NTFS 3G to the mount directory. They can see the uh, file system there once they execute a DF and they just write some random data to um, a test file on that drive and then unmount it. And then finally, they do the same using ZFS. So they create a ZFS pool. Um, then they create a data set on the ZFS pool. They do a test write. And then uh, everything is happy days there. And importing an already configured pool with the Z pool import. Um, and um, they had to use the force flag to uh, bring that pool in. So, yeah, it's really just a, a um, you know, a brain dump of going through the process of uh, portable storage media on, on the OS. Uh, it's good to see that uh, those sorts of things are continually be improved in those operating systems so they're not left behind. Yeah, that increases adoption. If people have an easy time to adding the storage they want or they use every day, then that helps making the jump to a new operating system much easier. Yeah, because, you know, you can't be connected to a network all the time. Uh, sometimes you <laughs> yeah. need to be able to just move data between machines and, uh, you know, getting either network access or, or the authority to access a network uh, might be too hard. So you just need to shimmy files between machines and, you know, portable storage media allows you to do that. So, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, We stay a little bit with the storage because we have another tutorial like blog post yeah it's more like a tutorial from dan langill uh creating a time capsule instance using samba freebsd and zfs so he has been uh posting a couple of these but this one is now using samba uh as he writes in his first sentence here this is a rewrite of his previous post on the same subject he has rewritten it because he created a new jail tm aha time machine and i'm using a different configuration now i recently moved time capsule instance from a freebsd host into a jail later i moved to using samba instead of afp which is apple file protocol why he asks himself samba seems to be the preferred solution because afp has been deprecated it still works but let's go samba so he's using freebsd 14.0 and samba version 4.16.11 and in his summary, he's not going into details about creating a jail, configuring it, etc. He doesn't show how to install the packages or create the users. This is mostly about Samba in the jail. And he provides all the configuration that's needed, uh, first with the jail. So that's not too exciting. He gives it, uh, which Nick show to use, the bridge zero in his case, a uh, little host name so that he can distinguish it between his many other jails. I'm fairly sure he has multiple ones. And... Uh, the TM itself gets his IP address and forces that FS equals one, allows mounting of null FS and allows mount equals true and allow mount of file descriptor file system. Now, Samba. Note, uh, this configuration should work or stop working for him. Uh, he doesn't know why. He's using the configuration shown in the FreeBSD forums post. Uh, he links to each of these in his previous post. I uh, was using the FreeBSD forums post as a starting point. And he described what he has done in the sections in the smb4.conf. Uh, it's a bit hard to read here because it's mostly comment or uh, uh, configuration lines that uh, are 
just easier if you follow along and implement this yourself. Then he has a section, create user passwords. This section deals with Samba users. The latest section deals with Unix users in the jail. I will create a Samba login for each device, which will be backed up. Here's the first one. Note uh, that I first created dvl-pro03 using add user. Actually, I just copy-pasted entries from VIPW in the other time capsule instance. If you're not duplicating an existing instance, you probably want to run add user before running this command. So he adds this user, gives it a password, of course. And then he thinks the Samba passwords are stored in vardb Samba 4 slash private. There's a pass db, tbd, tdb, and secrets.tdb. Uh, could very well be. The storage location, uh, he won't show you the creation, but he'll show you the data sets that are created then. Okay. There, he has a couple ZFS lists here and uh, everything you can follow along quite nicely. And Unix users within a jail. This section uh, deals with Unix users. A later section deals with Samba users. He won't go into user creation, but uh, you can find his entries of etc pass WD for the three users, which shell they have, and what kind of you know other particularities like home directory there are. Okay, so in this jail, those home directories do not exist. I copied the users over from another host uh, from his previous time machine solution. Uh, he opened PIPW on one host and copy-pasted into another. This creates the users, but does not create the home directories. Yep. I did similar for ETC group for those users. I created separate Unix users for each laptop. I'm backing up. I'm not sure why. However, this sure looks right to me. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, then he goes into enabling and starting Samba. <laughs> he, he writes, here we go. The big event. Uh, it's service Samba underscore server. Wait, one more time. Pseudo service Samba underscore server start. And uh, yeah, I need to for he needed to do an rc.conf entry first, and after doing that, the Samba service complained, KLD load, can't load, fdeskfs, yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently this wasn't loaded. He needed to mount, he needed to add mount.defs to his jail configuration. He stopped the jail, added that, and restarted the jail, and then the jail configuration at the top of this post includes that, so that you don't have to repeat that mistake. And now Samba was happily running, and the solution is working for him, although he had this uh, note earlier that it stopped working for him. Maybe he has found a way to fix this by now. Uh, he has yet to get a full backup completed. Yeah, the first backup is just the full backup that takes a long time. And they are in progress as he types from when is that blog post? From uh, yes. January 6th. Okay, I think that should be finished by now, by the time we record this. <laughs> yeah, he's usually pretty well on the money um, if things fail, like completely hard fail. Like he put a note up further up up above. Obviously, you know, he was as he was going through, he, he had a, a bit of an issue um, with Samba. Um, Samba's one of those funny ones where, um, you know, copying a, a config from a few years ago um, that probably won't work today. It's it's a very fluid um, application where they'll change things or deprecate things like, you know, midstream in a major version. So, um, yeah, don't always rely on something you might have found on the forum for uh, a few minor versions ago because it might not work now. So, um, yeah, so it looks like he's got it working. Um, I think this is pretty relevant to a lot of people because, you know, plugging just a USB drive into your Mac is not... Uh, going to be sort of a resilient backup we know yeah. we know um dan's um background with you know his jail usage and his zfs usage so um his backups are going to be well well preserved and um and will avoid bit rot which you know a standard um you know usb hard drive or ssd drive that's plugged into a mac is not going to be um protected from so yeah this is a good thing um highly recommend it uh i've got a mate that uh, does his Max at home in a similar method, just not in jails, just uh, on FreeBSD with Samba. So, uh, yeah. with great success. And if so, you get a new Mac, then you just, hey, here's my time capsule. Pull down everything, and you're just at the same machine as you were leaving uh, the old machine behind, and you can just continue working with all the files and settings that you had on the other machine. Yeah, that's one. That's one good thing that the you know the Macs have over Windows is being able to uh, go back to where you were. Uh, that's one reason why I have an iPhone because I can just get a new iPhone and put it beside it. <laughs> and then the configuration just moves straight across. 
Um, and it's the same with, you know, the Mac workstation. So it's uh, it's a really good thing. Uh, I wish more things had had something like this. You know, in the BSD world, we don't have to worry about that. You know, we, we've got plenty of tools to be able to um, move our, our lives across from one workstation to another, which uh, makes it a lot easier. And this moves us into a bit of a... A section, a new section, or a temporary section, should I say? Um, oh, yeah, of, yeah, of conferences. We thought know? we combined them in here. Yes, so. yes. Um, so you know, a new a new year kicks off with um, uh, new scheduled conferences that are hitting the ground running. And first up is FOSDEM twenty twenty four. We have a link on the show notes to the FOSDEM twenty twenty four webpage. Uh, FOSDEM is a free event for software developers to meet, share ideas, and collaborate. Every year, thousands of developers of free and open-source software from all over the world gather at the event in Brussels. You don't need to register. Just turn up and join in. So uh, there's uh, a big list of sponsors already. Uh, the address is up there at the camp uh, campus du uh, Solbosius, um, uh, 1050 Bruxelles, Belgium. So there's the uh, the list of the venue there of all the rooms that are involved so go and have a look at the show notes and um there might be something there especially if you're close by i'm sure you're you're uh closer than i am benedict um you, yeah you planning to go <laughs> over to uh Fosdem? no not this year uh so unfortunately we couldn't get a bsd dev room so there was uh they put preference over another project, which is fine. Um, but I guess there will be a bunch of FreeBSD or BSD folks in general at FOSDEM. So if you see them, maybe they have stickers on the laptops or some other way of identifying, then uh, yeah, say hi. And that's nice. I'm uh, In the previous years, I was, uh, besides pandemic, uh, I was at FOSDEM, uh, but this time I have other plans. So uh, this won't be me at FOSDEM. But uh there are other conferences, Asia BSDCon, they have their schedule up already. So they did their call for papers in, uh, I think, the last quarter of 2023. And uh, Asia BSDCon will happen in uh, from March 21st to the 24th in Taipei. Be careful, not in Japan this year. It's in Taipei, Taiwan. And the Chiantan Youth Activity Center will have the venue and you can find the conference timetable on their website. So they have a couple of interesting talks there. And a couple of uh, people you may recognize, like Kirk McCusick, Alan Jude will be there. And some others, different talks, different subjects, but all around the BSDs. And I think that will be a nice conference and a nice venue to go to if you are in the area. Yeah, there's some good talks um, uh, over the paper sessions. Uh, and some tutorials too. So, you know, if you're uh, into some routing, uh, there's BGP 101, uh, which is uh, highly recommended if you're uh, looking at getting into networking. Uh, BGP is where it's at. Um, and there's a complement complementary one there with the Open Packet Filter toolset uh, in network management. Uh, so there are two tutorials. Kirk McCusick has got a tutorial as well. Uh, so um, anybody who wants to... Uh, go there for an introduction to file systems and networking and the FreeBSD open source operating system. Um, that's another one good. But um, yeah, this, um, you know, something there for everyone at uh, Asia BSDCon. So um, highly recommend you getting along to seeing that if you're in the area. Which brings us into BSD CAN 2024. We've got uh, a call for papers. Um, so the website has uh, has got the information up there already for um, the schedule. So the call for papers went out on the 26th of December and the uh, submissions end on the 12th of February. So you're not going to have much time left. Yeah, you probably got a week. It. Yeah, just over a week of, um, after this comes out of getting your submission in. So know get cracking um and then you'll be notified on the 4th of march uh when the uh uh your talk has been accepted uh as you will be contacted by the organizers uh this uh, uh further information there you know it's uh on the 31st of may to the 1st of june uh 2024 um over friday and saturday so it allows you a sunday to travel home uh in ottawa canada so yeah yeah 
it's it doesn't need much explanation it's pretty self-explanatory so you know uh again if you're in the north america district and um, i'm sure the europeans do i've been across to a couple of bsd cans but i won't be attending this one unfortunately uh, i can you know get get one or two uh, conferences every couple of years but um yeah it's it's a pretty big ask um, for me to get there but uh yeah it's one that um you know you'll get to meet a large crew it's it's pretty big it's one of the biggest conferences on the calendar yeah and we want people to go there so um they have also a blog like the operations blog because dan has kind of retired from bsd can and they hand over uh, or have handed over last time to a group of a number of people actually who are now doing the operations for BSD CAN and they kind of document their uh, exploits into uh, a blog where you can follow along what they are doing and you know how they are with don donations and stuff like that. So that's already uh, on. You can read that if you're interested in what's going on behind the scenes. And next conference in uh, on my continent at least that's EuroBSDCon twenty twenty four. They have not yet put out the call for papers, we'll, but I guess we'll uh, do that at the beginning of March. And the conference dates are already known. So if you want to block your calendar for this one, it's from the 19th of September to the 22nd of September. That's EuroBeastiCon, and it's in Dublin, Ireland this year. So every uh, year EuroBeastiCon is traveling around into another country and this year again it's in dublin ireland which is a nice place i've been to dublin it's very great to be there and um yeah if you have ever had a guinness then you know where this is coming from um and if that call for paper opens we'll probably uh, mention it again so that you have a chance to submit there as well yeah it's it's you know i haven't been to europe before um it is a conference that I want to go to to experience a different a different environment. I've been to both Asia and uh, BSD Can, and I haven't been to Euro BSD Con, so um, I'm looking forward to this year's one. Um, I'm definitely, you know, I've got the calendar's dates reserved in my work calendar. So, um, and uh, I've just completed uh, some work um, at work uh, for. Uh, content for a paper so Ooh, um yes i'm going to better. be submitting a paper uh, just like i hope everybody else that's listening to the podcast uh to um you know uh, hopefully be accepted and presented it so um, yeah, you heard it here first yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm committing myself now to putting a paper in aren't i <laughs> there we go yeah um, <laughs> that's the spirit yeah so you know that's you know s- stepping up and um you know doing doing some of the stuff you might might be doing at home uh, you've written a few blog posts about all you know stuff that you've done at work. So uh, you know these conferences are sort of displaying uh, what you've done with with BSD and what it can do for others. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it and uh, yeah, getting to experience a bit of Europe at the same time. And if you are not that uh, presenting, uh, then you just attend as a conference attendee. That's also important if you have uh, people sit in the audience to listen to talks. That is, uh, you know, that is yeah. very important, Benedict, and you did raise a good point there. Um, you know, uh, the first conferences that we tend to go to, we tend to sit back and, you know, just listen to what others have got to yeah. say. And, you know, there's, Jeff there's, me, yeah, yeah. there's the super superheroes in the room that, you know, we all hear about in different, um, you know, that they are, you know, the gods of, mm. of the perceived gods um, yeah, yeah. The perceived gods of of the bsd world um and we see them and we you know we look up and go wow you know but um you know we all have to start somewhere and uh going along to these conferences and hearing how other people use stuff it gives you a better insight into um how you can you know maybe adapt it to solving problems that you have yourself so you know, going along to these conferences is always beneficial uh, our very own producer, JT, uh, wants us also to know about Southeast Linux Fest. That's in the US. And uh, don't let the name fool you, he writes a little note here. Self is a BSD-friendly, and they'd love to have BSD Unix talks if you're in the area. Uh, so our don't, JT, is staff at the Southeast Linux Fest. So he can put in a good word for you if you are submitting a talk. Uh, he provides a link to the website for Self. And 
there you can find all the information when uh, it happens and let me see when the date is uh, ah june 7th till the 9th till the 9th of uh, 2024 yeah the sheraton charlotte airport hotel in charlotte north carolina cool haven't been yeah just remember dates uh for proposals um uh are open now and uh will be closed on march 1 2024 so you know, don't leave it to the last minute. Uh, you know, yeah. getting getting the the presentation or your proposal, uh, you know, straight and easily easy to understand. Um, does take a bit of time, so you know, get cracking on that now, and um, yeah, get on down. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it will be a very interesting experience, whether you are talk speaking or attending. Although attendees also talk, <laughs> hopefully, to people in the hallway, and. It's always a nice experience in the BST space, whether you're in a uh, big conference or a small conference. It's just the BST spirit is there and the people are very nice. And uh, yeah, it's just a good atmosphere. BST Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. All right, uh, that's, I think, everything that we have for you today. We have feedback and questions in the next episode, um, but this one is quite packed already, so we leave you here. Hopefully, you enjoy the rest of the week and will join us again next week's episode where we have more BSD content for you. Catch you later.